turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just to refresh you, to bring up speed, we've been going through, we finished our study in Timothy. Timothy uh, deals a lot, or Paul speaking to Timothy deals a lot with the reality um, that in the last days there is going to be apostasy. Uh, there are going to be people turning away from the faith, there are going to be people um, that are going to give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons and so on. Um, and the word is going to be compromised. Uh, that's what Paul said to Timothy, and we're living in those days. Last week we looked at the whole issue of apostasy. We saw every time apostasy occurs in Scripture, God brings judgment. And it's no different in the days in which we live. But we have this very interesting verse in First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, which says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. As I said last week, we can understand that as saying, if you look at the, the Greek behind this, for the season of judgment. Because we know from Scripture that there will be a season, a period of time, where God will bring a number of judgments uh, on this world, on different groups, individuals, and so on. Um, but that season of judgment is going to commence, it's going to start, with the house of God. And we see the same, we see exactly that going on now. Uh, and we looked at some of those things, we looked at a number of um, scriptures last week where um, Jesus warns, Paul warns, Peter warns um, that God is going to bring judgment on those that reject his word, those that move away from scripture, uh, those that allow these heretical teachings to come in and so on. And in one sense it's nothing new, it started in the early church, uh, we saw it even Jude has to write about the problems that were going on right back in the first century. So this isn't something that's just happening now, but it is starting to reach a kind of fever pitch. Um, so the, the second session, which we're not going to do in its entirety uh, this morning, um, is looking at the future of the church as seen through the history of Israel. Now, the reason I've got you to turn to 1 Corinthians, if you just look at that passage... Um, and we uh, pick up verse, um, let's just go from the beginning, it's just easier, verse 1 of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, Paul says, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers, speaking of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish fathers, uh, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Speaking of that cloud that had gone before them, speaking of passing through the Red Sea. And all were baptized unto Moses, uh, symbolically going through the Red Sea, in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, um, speaking of the manna that God provided for them. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock. You remember, um, as they journeyed, uh, they came to this place, Horeb, where Moses was commanded to strike the rock. And as he struck, strikes the rock, water comes gushing out. We've got um, pictures of the, what seems to be that very rock in the location as described by the Bible uh, down in Saudi Arabia today, Midian as it was uh, previously known. Uh, this rock that seems to be split from the top to the bottom and huge evidence of erosion in a place where there's hardly any rainfall. Um, that rock physically is there to this day. You can see it on Google. Uh, you can go and have a look. Um, but that rock was symbolic of Christ. Because it says they all drank of that same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's a great study to go through the Old Testament and look at every time stones or rocks are mentioned and see how they all point to Jesus in one way or another. It's quite fascinating. And verse 5 says, But with many of them, God was not well pleased. 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now verse 6 is the interesting one. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be you idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed as serpents. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And in verse 11 seals it and says this. Now all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the worlds are come. So we have this scripture that's telling us that the mistakes that Israel made, we should learn from them. The problem is we haven't learnt from them. We haven't learnt from them at all. <clears throat> what we're going to do next week, because of the time this morning, is to go through and look at the, the history of Israel as Jeremiah portrays it and see within that, and what was going on in Jeremiah's time, how we see an incredible prophetic model of what is going on in the church now. But what I want to show you this morning, because of the time we've gone, hopefully you'll find this encouraging and blessing and so on, is an amazing prophetic plan that is written within the scriptures and that's there when we look back and we look at the history. Now, on one side, you've on the left, you've got Israel. On the right, you've got the church. The interesting thing is that Israel, we know from history, started, according to Jeremiah, with his time of espousal, betrothal, like an engagement. It was a wonderful situation as God was effectively marrying Israel. It's a wonderful picture that's painted that, that Israel were like God's bride. They were to be his wife. And it starts off a wonderful picture in this time in the wilderness when they were alone with God. Almost like a kind of, they come out of Egypt, they're joined to God, and there's almost like this, this early part of this wonderful relationship. Now we know also from scripture that that period lasted 38 years. They spent two years camped at Mount Sinai. But then they went off in their journeying, and that period was 38 years. Now why this is interesting and significant is because the church also, according to Revelation 2-4, those letters that Adrian alluded to earlier, um, in there, that first letter, the church of Ephesus, are spoken of as having this, this kind of love of espousal also. The name Ephesus means darling. It's that, exactly that idea even in the name. And the church also started with a period of 38 years, from AD 32 from the time of the resurrection through to AD 70. Both start with the same numeric period of years in this time growing together. And of course, AD 70 was when the Romans came and laid siege to Jerusalem and so on, and everything, all the Christians, all the Jews were scattered from Jerusalem from that point. Israel then go on, and the next stage of their history we see them through a time of war entering into the promised land and all the battles and things uh, that they fight as they go in under Joshua. And it's the next period of their history. Interestingly, the next letter in the letters we have in Revelation is the letter to the church of Smyrna. And again, it speaks of a time of battle, a time of struggle, and yet a great time of victory. 
The church grew incredibly through that period of time. It's often said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. That so many Christians were being martyred and were being killed, and yet the Lord was using that to strengthen and the church was growing. So both Israel and the church start with this period of relationship building, and they go into this period of battle. That's a really prosperous time for them in terms of their growth. The interesting thing is that then Israel go on to this time of complacency. The, the time of the judges, where they started to embrace the things of the world. They wanted to be like the nations around them and so on. And we see so many times during the book of Judges. I mean, if you read the book of Judges, I mean, there are people that have said it should be not included in the Bible. I mean, it's almost an X-rated book. Some of the topics, some of the themes that are in there. And, you know, it, it's... It's one of those things, if you've ever read through a Bible with your children, you get to some of those things, you have to be very careful how you explain them. Because there's some really serious issues going on. I mean, it was a dreadful time for the nation. And that complacency brought defeat. Well, the next letter in the letters in Revelation that we looked at briefly last week as well, is the letter... Of Pergamos. Again, that mixed marriage is what it, it means. And it's a time when Constantine, the Roman emperor, uh, was ruling and reigning when he legalized Christianity and Christianity became married to the world. A time of complacency. When suddenly all the persecution had ended, all the freedom was given to the Christians to start using the pagan buildings. And not only did they use the pagan buildings, they adopted some of the pagan clothing. They adopted some of the pagan practices and the the setups and the altar and the raised platforms at the front and so on. That so many churches have that you won't find any of that detail in the Bible. And yet that was all brought over at this time into the Christian church. And as I said last week, you know, that started a wonderful period of time for architecture, but a dreadful period of time for spiritual growth, because so many of these uh, pagan ideas and concepts got brought in. All of these things, you see an incredible parallel between Israel and the church. Proverbs 29 verse 18 reminds us that when there is no vision, people cast off restraint. My paraphrase of that is, when you have nothing to aim at, you get sloppy. When you have no goal, no vision, nothing to to go for, then it's very easy to get complacent. And it's the same that happened with Israel, the same happened with the church, the same will happen with any of us. That's why we should all be involved in ministry. Because it gives us something to do. So some continual um, correction. Uh, As most of you are aware, I've been uh, over the last week or two um, building a, a summer house in our back garden. Finally got the roofing felt on yesterday, ended up covered in tar, I've still got bits left on me. Um, but one of the things that we were doing, we were measuring uh, the, the felt and other bits, um, and I was measuring on one side, um, and Joy said to me, uh, I said to Joy, measure on the other side, well why have, you, why have you got to measure both sides? And I said, because if that line's not straight when we go to cut it, it might be shorter, we might, may not have it true. So we need to measure both sides, we know that each part we're cutting is exactly the same. It's the, the principle is, when you've got something to, to look at, something to go for, you stay true. But when you haven't, it's very easy to veer off. Uh, and certainly when you're, you're building something or any construction work, you can't afford to do that. But it's the same in our, in our Christian lives. You know, I've always been grateful that over the years I've had jobs to do um, within my church life. Um, certainly for the last... Goodness, how many years now? 20 years plus. Every week I do a set list of songs for, for the Sunday. Um, you know, and it's a good thing because every week I've got that continual kind of normally midweek reminder 
of God and the God that we serve and just to, to get my heart and mind on thinking about worshipping him. And, and it's a great, pull you back online, midway through the week. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And sometimes those things you feel, oh, I've got to do that again. But then you remember that, you know, it's good. It pulls you back straight. So it's great to have some sort of ministry where you're serving the Lord, where you're continually brought back in track. Things like Bible studies, things like prayer meetings, where we always pull back online. Without vision, where people cast off restraint. Again, <clears throat> we get to the next next age for Israel, and it was that rejection of the theocracy. God's rule over them. If you remember that Saul was appointed as king, never really the, the right man for the job. He was chosen, and of course he started off okay, but he was chosen by the people. The people wanted a king. And of course, God is the one that, that picks Saul in that sense. But it was all because the people wanted to be like the nations and have a man ruling over them, rather than just God ruling over them. How interesting then, that when we look at the church, the next church age, we find exactly the same thing. A rejection of God's rule in favour of man's rule. And we begin the period of the papacy, where the Pope is then put in place as a man who is now between God and mankind. That's never the way scripture says it should be. There is just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's the only individual that is there, Jesus, nobody else. And Jesus, of course, is God. So there is nobody between man and God, or there shouldn't be. But just as Israel appointed a man between them and God, so the church effectively did the same thing. And, of course, that speaks of that age of Thyatira that we looked at um, last night in Thyatira, meaning continual sacrifice, and very much speaks of the Roman Catholic Church. We then move on in Israel's history, and then we get to the division of the kingdom. That's the next major thing that occurs. And this was really as a result of Solomon's apostasy, that God says he's going to tear the kingdom away. And, of course, we end up with Israel, the northern kingdom, who get into all sorts of idolatry, and we end up with Judah, the southern kingdom, who we're told are not perfect. The interesting thing is that in Jeremiah 3.11, Israel is spoken of because of their good works. Yes, they were involved in idolatry, but they did some good stuff. Judah, on the other hand, are spoken of as being worse than Israel because they had Israel's example, but they didn't learn from it. In fact, they went and did the same things. How interesting then, when we look at the church, and of course after the time of the theocracy beginning, we get to the time of the Reformation, and we end up with this split within the church system. The, the, the church of, of Sardis depicts this Reformation church. And really again, as a result of the Catholic apostasy, all the things they'd started to bring in, people like Martin Luther and many others realized that there was a problem, that we'd moved away from Scripture. And so, because of that apostasy, we end up with this split. We end up with the Catholic Church, who, and you don't need to look very far to realize that they're very much into idolatry. Every Catholic Church you go into, you will find idols throughout the whole building. People, these statues that people will bow to and venerate and so on. But interestingly, in Revelation 2.19, the church of um, Thyatira is spoken of for their good works, just as Israel were. Whereas the Protestant church, if that seems to be depicted by Sardis, there's nothing good said at all. There's one of only two that there's nothing good said. 
Is it effective is that your, your ways are not perfect. How interesting that the Protestant church, which should have reclaimed so much, yes, reclaimed that doctrine of grace and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, missed out on so many other things, never addressing things like Israel's place in God's plan, never addressing things like the return of Jesus and the second coming and a millennial kingdom and all those things that the church have believed and accepted up to those kind of points, uh, barring the way that the Catholics have twisted it. But the Protestant church never tried to address those issues. How similar we see these things. Well, we then get to this period of time that for Israel and Judah, the, the judgment was foretold uh, on them. Of course, Israel were taken away First, into into captivity by the Syrians, but then we get to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, 606 BC, the first siege, uh, then 597, the second siege, when Ezekiel's taken, Daniel's taken the first siege, Ezekiel's taken the second siege, and then the final siege of Jerusalem, when Zedekiah the king uh, is taken out, his eyes are plucked out and so on. Uh, incredible detail in the prophecy. He was told that he, he would go to Babylon, but he wouldn't see it. And people have said two different prophecies. That one says he will go to Babylon. One says, he'll see, uh, sorry, one says yeah, he'll go it. And one says he won't see Babylon. And people said, well, there's a contradiction. Well, no, not at all, because he was taken outside of Jerusalem and his sons were killed before his eyes and his eyes plucked out and he was taken to Babylon. So he went to Babylon, but he never saw it. How detailed, how specific prophecy is. But as a result of the judgment that was foretold, and Jeremiah deals a lot with this, and we'll look in detail more of that next week, the faithful were taken to Babylon. Those that trusted God were taken out of the way. And then God brought his judgment upon Jerusalem. Some tried to escape down to Egypt and do other things, and God brought judgment upon them. But the faithful ones went to Babylon, and they were the ones that later returned. Interestingly, that we have the Church of Philadelphia, which seems to speak of the rapture. It speaks of being taken out of the way before God brings his judgment. Those that are faithful, again, taken out of the way before that judgment comes. And then we get to this church age, or sorry, this this period of time for Israel, after the time of the Babylonian captivity, um, sorry, uh, after, as a result of the Babylonian captivity, the, the apostates and the false prophets were destroyed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself was burnt with fire, and God brought this destruction that he promised. And it's the same with the church of Laodicea, that final church age. People there will cry out, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. God will bring judgment on the church in the same way he brought judgment on Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem had this incredible um, pride and arrogance, saying, well, God wouldn't destroy us. The prophets at the time were saying to the people, but this is Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And God says, no, no. it's only great because God is great. You take God out and it loses its greatness. And unfortunately, the church, in that sense, is the same. When the word is removed, there's an interesting play on the name Ichabod. If you remember, Eli, the priest, has two sons, Hophnes and Phineas, I think, or Phineas. And one of them, when the ark is taken, the day the ark is captured, Eli's grandson is born, and they name him Ichabod. That's a strange name, maybe, but the name means the glory has departed. 
How significant it is that on the day the ark is removed and the ark represented the word of God to all intents and purposes, the ark, the word was taken out of Israel and the glory departed. And the same will happen to any church. When the word of God is taken out of a church, the glory will depart. They may carry on doing the same things. They may carry on meeting. There may not be any obvious difference on the outside but the glory of God will go. If God's word is taken out, the glory will depart also. So we have this incredible model, these seven ages of Israel, but also mirrored incredibly by the seven letters that are given in Revelation. Also the seven parables in Matthew 13 and so on. And also significantly the seven churches that Paul writes to. Um, if you take out the personal letters and so on, Paul writes to seven churches. Uh, and it's interesting that they all follow this model. There's this idea, there's this theme behind all of them. God's clearly dealt uh, behind the scenes bringing this together. Uh, and the interesting thing is, of course, for Israel, as I said a moment ago, that the faithful that went off to Babylon returned to inherit the land. And when they returned, eventually a temple was built that the Messiah would one day teach from. Or how significant that to conclude our story here, that those that are faithful, those that are taken out at the time of the rapture, will return when Jesus returns. As the oldest prophecy in the Bible by Enoch says, lo, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. They were, the, the saints will return when Jesus comes at the second coming and will return to inherit the land. Just as Jesus spoke about the meek inheriting the earth. Those that are, are faithful, that put their trust in Jesus, they'll be taken out of the way where that judgment comes. And then they'll be brought back afterwards to inherit the land. And once again, another temple is going to be built. And Messiah will teach from that temple also. How incredible God's control of history and how incredible these two things marry up. And the more you study Israel, and this is why, if you want one of many reasons, but this is why we should look and understand the Old Testament. Because the more you understand about Israel and God's dealing and his plan with Israel, the more you'll understand about the church and what God is doing and has done and will do in and through the church as well. It's interesting, isn't it, that Israel were to be the bride of Jehovah. The church is to be the bride of Christ. These two parallels, just incredible. We'll build on this next week. We'll leave it for there uh, this morning. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, this time of fellowship, this time of study, this time of reflection, as we've just been brought face to face again with our great Savior. Oh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for us. We thank you for paying the price for our sin. Lord, strengthen us. Lord, give us the encouragement we need to keep, take each step forward with you. And Lord, give us a hunger and a desire for everything that is holy. Oh Lord, strip away from us, Lord, however painful it may be, the things in our lives that are not of you. And fill us, Lord, with such a love of you, such a love of all that is righteous and pure and true. May we set our minds on those things. And Lord, be with us through this coming week, Father. We pray for the children as they go back to school. Lord, that your hand will be upon them. Bless them and keep them and protect them. Give them opportunities to witness. And Lord, just guard their hearts and minds, we pray. Uh, and Father, for all of us, that we will continue to grow in knowledge and in your incredible, amazing grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.